we're going to be picking up again on this theme of identity. And I'm going to do a little exercise, and you don't have to shout it out, but just in your mind, think about who am I talking about. And I'm going to give a couple criteria to these people that I'm talking about. So first I'm going to say one thing aspect of the person is if they were man or God. Another thing is what was their unity with God? And then also what was their purpose on this earth? And so as you listen to these things, just think about who am I talking about? So first one was a created divine being. Second, either divine being, but created by God and inferior to father, son of God and savior. And his purpose was to save humanity from sin. Next one. He was God. He was divine being sent from the supreme God and to rescue humanity from the material world by revealing true knowledge. Another one, he was a man. He was a true prophet sent by God, but superseded by Muhammad to reveal God's will in a progressive revelation that ended with Muhammad. And one more, he was an archangel, son of God, word of God, God's first creation, archangel Michael. And he came to teach about God, provide a model for right living, die sacrificially for human sin. So if you're probably wondering what do those things have to do and who are those people? But the reality is each of those is what each of those religions call Jesus. So this is who they call Jesus to be. These different descriptions as we got, some of them conflicting and wondering, okay, what do they have to do together? But I'm going to read one more of what does Christianity say Jesus is. He's both fully God and fully man. The second person of the Trinity, incarnation of God, son of God and savior. And he came to die for the sins of humanity. So with that last one, I know many of us will say, amen, I believe that. My question to you is, why? Is that something that you have seen for yourself in scripture? Or has somebody just taught you that? Or is it a formula that we've heard through either being taught through catechism or through preaching or just a multitude of resources that we have? And I'm not saying that secondary resources are bad. They are good and thank God for them. But they are supplemental. The same way how if you're having a diet and you need some extra supplements to help with deficiencies, whether with all the different type of deficiencies that we have. But it would be foolish if I said that we lived off of supplements. We only took pills. Because going to the source is where we can find truly who this Jesus is. Because as the scriptures teach us, this is a matter of life and death that we recognize Jesus for who he is. And so his identity is important. It's crucial. It's crucial to who we are. It's crucial to who we are as people, the reason that we were created. And so today we're going to continue in this theme of identity. As Jesus has talked prior last week about how the Jews, how their identity was wrong, how they were making all kinds of claims, but he shows them, no, this is not who you are. And today now we're going to look at who does Jesus tell himself to be. And so we're going to see that this is crucial, that for those who believe and trust in the real Jesus, They will never see death. But those who reject this Christ, they'll be left over to their sin. And so with that in mind, let's read this passage. We're going to be in John 8, starting in verse 48. So in John 8, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it 
and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you in thankfulness, thankful that we can come to you. And Lord, as we know, there's so many different things that people say that you are, so many different religions believing that you were their Christ. They prop you up with so many different attributes, Lord, and they sell you short for who you truly are. So Lord Jesus, I pray that we may see you rightly through your word. We may see you for who you are, that we may bow and worship that we may enjoy our relationship with you, that we may know you, that we may serve you, obey you, and follow you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and you have just not left it up as a mystery. By your grace, we can know you. And so today I pray that we may see you and behold our God and worship you for that. Thank you for revealing yourself to people like us. Amen. Amen. So as we pick up today, we're going to be looking back also at where Jesus started this off in this temple discourse. And this will be the end of chapter 8 in this discourse that he's having between him and the Jews. And back in chapter 7, we saw him enter into the, the temple hidden and he began to teach. And as he began to teach, the Jews started going back and forth with him, confronting him, saying all kinds of different things. And then last week, this tension, this friction between them gets even more bottled up with. He says that they are of their father, the devil. As they are making this claims as God is their father, that they are Abraham children. And Jesus says to them, no, they are not. And now we come to today where Jesus talks more about his own identity. And as we look at that in your bulletins, it has on the top, it says Jesus is. And through each passage and each verse, we're going to see something that Jesus is and that Jesus is not. So that we know who the true Jesus is revealed in the word. So we can see these doctrines that we have, these teachings that through catechism and different means, that this is where they find their root is in the scriptures. And so as we look at it, let's start in verse 48. So, so the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? And so, again, we see the Jews doubling down, that the lie that they're believing, and then they begin to attack Jesus. They don't address what he just said back in verse 47, where he says, whoever is of God will hear the words of God, or even their identity as being of their father, Satan. 
but they just resort to just attacking Jesus instead of addressing his claim. And that's a problem with sin. That's a problem with our humanness that has been infected by sin is sometimes we don't even hear what's going on. We just have what we believe and we just attack the person because we want to defeat them because he's revealing about who they are. And instead of embracing and humbly submitting, they reject him. And let's look at the two things that they call him. The first of a Samaritan, second of a demon. And simply put, Jesus is not a demon. He's not demon-possessed. And they even throw it back at him after he has said, they're ordained, they're fathers of Satan. They say, no, no, you are demon-possessed. You're this crazy one, all this stuff that you're saying. And the second one of a Samaritan, which I want to take a little time to talk about the history between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because I know a lot of times we've been going through talking about the Samaritans and the Samaritans and the woman of Samaria. But who are the Samaritans and what is their origin? What has happened between them and the Jews? And often when we don't know this history, it's like if somebody were to come into America during the 70s when there was a lot of tension between racially and not understanding the history that happened to build up to this tension. And so we're going to look at some of the history routines to understand how this claim that they're making a Samaritan is not a light one. So back in 1 Kings 12, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king. And when he became king, the Jews came to him, or sorry, the Israelites came to him, and they asked for their burden to be lightened. Because as we know, Solomon had amassed this amazing kingdom, and so much stuff was built up, and Israel was the wealthiest that it ever had been during the time of Solomon. So they asked for relief, but Rehoboam went to his counselors, which were men of his age, and they told him, no, 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 don't listen to them. Instead, increase their burden. Your burden will be 10 times stronger than what your father's was. And being a fool, he listened to them. And so he went to them and said, no, I'm not going to lighten your burden. And what ended up happening during this time is this is where the separation of Israel. And this is why we have the northern kingdom of Israel, which is made up of the 10 tribes. And then we have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is made up of Judah and Benjamin. So now Israel has been broken into two. So we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So we fast forward now in 1 Kings 16, and there's King Omri. Him and another king are competing over Israel, and he ends up winning. Then he buys Samaria, which we get the Samaritans, and he makes this his capital city. But he's an evil and wicked king, and he creates other altars for other gods, and so the roots of Samaria have, all, have roots in idolatry. So then we fast forward again to 2 Kings 17, verses 1 through 6, which you don't have to turn to. And in here we see that Israel is besieged by the Assyrians. And they come for, and they have besieged them for three years, finally overtaking Samaria. They capture the capital city and they lead them all off into captivity. And later on in verses 24 through 41, the king of Assyria, he resettles, some, sorry, the king of Assyria, of Assyria resettles Samaria. And when he does, he sends in a bunch of people who are worshiping all kinds of different idols. And so they come in in this melting pot of mixing of all kinds of idols in Samaria. And then lions are sent to them and many people are killed by lions. And so what they think is, all right, we must appease the God of the land. So send back one of their priests to teach them their law. And so this priest comes teaching them the law, but the problem is that they mix in fear of God and worship of these idols. So they become this mix of, yes, we worship God, but also we are worshiping of idols. 
So that is that roots of where Samaria was. And then fast forwarding again into Ezra 4. And in Ezra 4, around this time, the Jew, the Judah, the southern kingdom had been captured by the Babylonians. And when they were captured, they were sent away. And then the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And so King Cyrus allowed them to go back to resettle the land and to build back up their places. So when they went to build up the temple, the Samaritans came to them and said, well, we've been worshiping the same God. How can we help to build back up this temple? But the Jews tell them no. And instead of just going away and just accepting that, what they end up doing is they start to insult the people. They begin to intimidate them. They begin to pay people to counsel against them building up the temple. And they even send a letter to the king telling him that if they build up this temple, that they're going to revolt. And this is the background of the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is why there's so much hatred between the two of them. And so we see when they're calling Jesus a Samaritan, they're saying he is an enemy of Israel. He is not a true Jew. And so we see this is not something that should be taken lightly. But we'll see how Jesus responds in the next verse. So in verses 49 through 50, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. So Jesus doesn't even answer their claim of being a Samaritan. We go straight to their claim of him being a demon. And his response is humble, and it reminds us of what 1 Peter 2, verses 23 says. That though he was reviled, though he was insulted, he did not insult back. But he committed himself to the one who judges justly. And so we see a picture of what Peter was talking about right here in Christ's response. And that sets an example for us when we're insulted, we're unjustly criticized by others, by each other, that we don't take revenge back. As Christians, we don't have a place to take revenge. The Bible tells us actually the opposite. To love those who do evil to you. So Jesus sets an example of how to deal with criticism, how to deal with persecution. That we do not take revenge back. But we commit ourselves to the one who judges justly, knowing that in the end, God will vindicate if we are being faithful to him. That we do not have to worry about seeking after our own glory, of proving our own name, but we can trust that God will take care of it. And this is the example that we see taken by Jesus. He goes in the complete opposite direction of what they did. That they chose to insult him, to try to condemn him, call him all manner of different names. But Jesus does not stoop low like they do, but does the opposite and says, my God, my Father, will judge this matter rightly. And so I will trust him. And this is how I will operate. And so the very first one of Jesus not being a demon or Samaritan. So we can be reaffirmed seeing that he is not crazy. He's not demon possessed, but he is humble, in control, and submitting himself unto the Father, which is opposite of how the Jews conduct themselves. So let's pick up again in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So the second thing we learn of Jesus is that Jesus is the source of life. We're going to flush this out in a second. So we see him as the source of life. And he starts off his statement as truly, truly. 
It's like, wake up. Pay attention. Hear what I'm going to say. I'm speaking from a place of authority. Listen closely to the words that I'm going to say next. And even the mercy that we see in Jesus right here. They are condemning him, calling him a demon, a Samaritan, and he is still extending his hand of salvation. He is still giving them the opportunity to turn. He's saying, this is how you turn. This is how you have life. This is how you will never see death. As we're going to continue to see that they reject this, even as Jesus is merciful to them while they are being unmerciful to him. What about this saying of never seeing death? What does it mean? So with that, let's turn to chapter 11, verse 25 through 26 in the same book of John. To get an idea of what is Jesus meaning by death. So we're not going to spend a lot of time because we're going to get to it hopefully in a couple months. But I mean, it's helpful to understand this passage. So just a basic little background is um, one of Jesus' disciples or followers, Lazarus, has died and his family has called him there. And he's come now and he says this down to um, Martha. So starting in verse 25. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet he shall live, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, as you know, obviously, Jesus dies physically. Lazarus has died physically. So what is Jesus getting at? He's saying though he has died physically, he shall live spiritually. And though we live spiritually, we will never see the death spiritually. And in summer, we realize that is because Jesus is the source of life. And therefore, he has power over life and death. And as we're going to look at in a second, that the Jews keep missing this, that Jesus is speaking of spiritual things. He's speaking of spiritual life that they need. He's speaking of spiritual life that they will never see death. And what about this claim of, if you keep my word, I know for some that may come to the mind of, all right, that means I must never sin, I must do all the good works, I must be good in all these different ways. But if we'll see often what Jesus called to us as his followers is, follow me, receive me, believe me, obey me, love me. And each of these are evidence, or how said we, by us believing in him, it will be evidenced by our works. Our works will testify of what's going on in our heart. And so Jesus' call is for us to follow. So to keep his word is to follow, to believe in him, to trust in him, simply to put our faith in him. That by keeping his word, he will sustain us because we are connected and unified to the very source of life and therefore nothing can happen to us in that way. And so that is the call, is to follow after him and to believe him. And this should shift our view if we believe that salvation is just a change of heart or a decision that we make or getting to heaven. We're going to look at two more passages, which will be up on the screen. So first one, we're going to read the first one and the second one right after. 
and we'll talk about it. So in the first one, this is John 17, 3. It says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the second passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That is what salvation is. Reconciliation to God. Because sin has separated us spiritually from the Lord. Our relationship has been broken, starting from Adam and has continued on with us. And what Christ has done by dying for us and paying for our sins is that he's removed that, that we may have a relationship with him. So this is the very purpose of life, the very purpose that we were all created for, is to have a relationship with God. So we see that salvation is not just a decision that we make, or even just getting to heaven. So all these things would mean nothing if God were not there. And that is the call. That is the life that we are going to. That is the life that we have. If we have this relationship that we know him, that is eternal life. So when we view our salvation of being saved, of being cleansed, the purpose, the reason for it is that we may have a relationship with God and be reconciled to him. And that sin no longer can separate us. As we could say with Paul, what can separate us from Christ? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing because he has joined himself. To, we have been united with him. And this unity, what it does is this unity to Christ it enables us to know the Father as we're unified to the Son and enjoy a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus bringing us into this relationship with the Trinity. Such a beautiful thing that we get to experience, that we get to be a part of. And we're enabled because of what Christ has done. He has made the way for us to be a part of this relationship that we will experience now and for all of eternity if our faith is in him. But the sorrowful reality is this, that the Jews did not accept him, that they rejected him. And we're going to look at how they rejected him in verses 52 and 53. So in verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So the first question of them being great of Abraham, we're going to see in verse 58, which he's going to answer to. But we're going to look at that second one, which is actually a really good and important question. They ask Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? Not just what is he saying, not understanding, but who do you make yourself out to be? To give an example of what I'm getting at with this is, if I say, for example, that I am the provider and sustainer of my family, 
It would be understood, okay, I'm working and I'm taking care of my family, I'm feeding and doing things of that nature. But if what I was trying to get across to you was, I'm the provider sustainer because I'm God, you would see, no, 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 there's a problem with who I'm making myself out to be. So the same statement, but the heart and the motive of what I'm trying to convey to you is very different based on what he's doing. And so we see the Jews have a very good question of who is Jesus making himself out to be? And that's the same question that we must do as we see this discourse between them, that we see Jesus speaking the things that he's saying. What is the conclusions that he's coming to? And to use a quote that won't be on the screen, but of C.S. Lewis that he made popular, is that we cannot say that Jesus is just a good teacher. He's either a liar, a lunatic, and I'm going to add one more into there, a legend or Lord. And why I add that second one, that add one of the legend, is because some people say this is all just made up. That this is not who Jesus actually was. This is not who Jesus actually is. But we must reject those first three. Because he is clearly Lord. And the response to that is faith. The response to that is belief. The response to that is trust. And we see also that Jesus could have asserted his, Lord, asserted his lordship here, but he doesn't. And we'll see him in verse 54 as he begins to continue on with his response to them. So in verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So we see, immediately, Jesus sets another example for us. That self-glory is worthless. And if anybody could have glorified himself, anybody deserved to, it would have been Jesus. But yet, he committed himself unto the Father, setting another example for us. That we do not seek glory from him to be propped up, to be glorified, or even to do it on our own. But we trust God. We trust that he will honor us. Trust that we were glorified with him in the end. We commit ourselves to that, not seeking glory here. And Jesus sets that example for us. And also we'll see how Jesus, his faith, his trust in the Father was validated as the Father did glorify Jesus. Starting from Genesis where he said that the Son will be born to crush the head, the snake. We start off from there. We continue on even the proclamation of his birth that angels came worshiping and singing. And during his infancy, that wise men came, laying down gifts, bowing down and worshiping him. And then during his baptism, they heard, Father, speak from heaven. This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Believe in him, trust in him. Such a beautiful thing. As we see at his ascension, that Paul is sat down at his right hand, a place of authority. And in Revelations, this beautiful picture says that they will be worshiping the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and praise. So we see that the Father did glorify and honor Jesus, and he's honoring him continuously. As he views him as his son and precious, as we see the Father's interaction with him as the same that we should see Jesus as. As the one whom we should listen to the Son of God, whom we can trust. So we see this beautiful picture throughout Scripture of the Father honoring Christ. And Jesus trusting Him. 
knowing that he did not have to assert himself. <laughs> so we're going to continue on. As Jesus claims Father of God, they claim to worship, which we will see the uniqueness of his claim. As they have before said that Jesus, that the Father is their God. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This one that you say is your God, this is my Father. And we're going to look at it in the next couple of verses. So start to pick up in verse 55. So in verse 55, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. So Jesus again contrasts his relationship with the Father. As he says, if I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, as he, we talked about last week. He says, I do know him. And those are three simple words, but they are very important. That Jesus' knowledge of the Father is very unique. His relationship with the Father is unique. That he can say to his disciples that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the uniqueness of his relationship extends even as you see with Jesus as he talks about his Father. Something that you'll notice in Scripture that Jesus, when talking about his Father, he does not say our Father. It's always in reference of mine. Or when he's speaking to the disciples, say your. And the only time that he ever says our father is when in the Lord's prayer. But in reality, the Lord's prayer is more better named the disciples prayer because he was teaching them to pray. And so we see this uniqueness of this relationship with the father, the son that was like no other. Jesus knowledge and understanding of the father was like no other. And so as we see him, he's displaying who the father is because of the uniqueness of this relationship. And we're going to turn to another passage to understand what does this mean for us, that this relationship that is so unique between the Father and the Son that we have been brought into. So turn with me to John 17, verses 20 through 25. So John 17 starting verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Amen. That is an amazing reality as we think about it. That the love that the Father had for the Son, that he loves us. I know that's mind-blowing at times to really contemplate to think about and meditate on because of the way that we operate, how sin has affected us, how we chase after so many different things. But if we be in Christ, though it may go far beyond our understanding and our imagination that the Father loves us as he loves the Son, and there's so much to unpack from there that we must live out. 
What a beautiful thing to believe and trust in when your mind and your heart and other things tell you no. That God has forsaken me. He does not love me. He does not care about me because of what's going on in my life, what's going on in my heart, because of my struggles. But if we be in Christ, the love that the Father has for us is amazing. In the truest sense of that word. So that is the implication of what Jesus is getting at. Is that the relationship that he has had with the Father, we have been brought into this relationship. That the Father loves us as he loves the Son. So now let's continue back to John 8. Look at verse 56. So Jesus says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So this reference, people will pick up different passages, a couple in Genesis and one in Hebrews that we're actually going to look at, to which it is, but we don't actually know to what exactly he's speaking of. But we still trust that Jesus' word is true. And so what I mean by that is there's many things in Scripture that we do not know in the sense of was recorded. As John even tells us that Jesus does so many things that he said, if possible, it would fill up the books of the world. It would fill up the whole entire world if he were to write down everything that Jesus did. But he says the purpose of what has been written is that we may know Christ and by that, by believing in him, have life. And so we can trust knowing that we have what we need to believe in Christ and have life. And so though this reference may not be in Scripture, we still trust Jesus' word that this happened, that Abraham saw him and he was glad. So we're going to actually look at a passage in Hebrews 11, verse 13, to kind of give us an idea of what he's speaking of. If you guys remember, for some of those who were here, we went through Hebrews 11 just looking at these great examples of faith. And we even touched on this passage of just how they trusted in God despite so many different things. In Hebrews 11.13, there's a picture of this. And it says, They all died in faith, not having received the the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so we see this example of Many of these people that are in the chapter 11 of in Hebrews, these men and women of faith, that though they did not receive this promise at the time, that they saw them from afar, that they trusted in them. And that sets the example from, uh, for us, that we trust that Christ is going to come back, that though that promise is afar, we trust that he will, by having faith in him, knowing that this is not our home. And so we see this example in Abraham, that he was glad, he rejoiced, and we should rejoice also at the coming of our Savior. Though we do not see it physically now, but we know because God has said that it is so. And so we trust as we see this example of Abraham. Yet again, unfortunate response from the Jews. As we're going to see in the next verse, that they reject this claim again. So, Again, in verse 57, going back to chapter 8. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 
So again, Jesus' statement blows right over their head. And this even reminds me a little bit of what we've seen with Nicodemus, where Jesus talked to him about being born again. He's talking of spiritual reality, but Nicodemus thought again, well, are you, do you mean I have to go back and be born of my mother again? We see Jesus is talking of a spiritual nature of Abraham seeing him. A reality that the Jews did not get. And also their use of the age of 50. So back in Numbers, chapter 8, verse 35, there's a reference to what the Levites were, the age that they were supposed to retire. So at age 50, the Levites were supposed to stop working and to do other services. So they were retired from their service. So it's almost this condescending way that they're saying to Jesus is, you're not even old enough to retire. Who do you think you are? How, how can you say that you've seen Abraham? Abraham has seen you. How condescending they are towards him. Yet again, they still do not see who is standing before him. And they reject him again. And then Jesus, we're going to see our next verse, drops a bombshell on them that shocks them. It stops them in their tracks. And they definitely understand what he says here. So in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, the truly, truly, Jesus is calling them to pay attention. Wake up, I'm speaking from authority. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I know that may seem like bad grammar in the sense of, why is it not I was, I was before him? But no, no, no. This is a special title of God, which Tim talked about a couple weeks ago, which we're not going to go to that passage, but you can look back at his Exodus 3.14. Tim talked about just the eternality of God, how he's without time. We're going to look at some references in Isaiah, which are going to be on the screen, where this same phrase of I am. And then the third one, which I think this is the one that Jesus is referencing to, is amazing when we realize who is speaking so starting in Isaiah 43, 9 through 13. It says, All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to, pro to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Sorry, next one. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? We'll take a moment. So in these first two, this is clearly God speaking. That praise of I am he. We talked about before a couple of weeks is the ego I me. 
And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that is that phrase that is right there, the statement of I am. And so we see this name of I am is attributed to God as the maker who stretches out the heaven, who is the savior, who comforts them, who cares for them. Now we come to this next one where how does he begin to speak to them to, to wake up basically? That he is coming to save them. As one of our fam- famous passages in the next chapter of Jesus being bruised for our transgressions in Isaiah 53. And we're going to see this phrase again of the I am. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. And so again, we see this thing that Jesus is saying is that he is God incarnate. This is not life that he's saying. He's not just saying that he's a part, but he's saying that he is God. And this answers the question that the Jews asked before. Is he greater than Abraham? Is he greater than the prophets who died? And the answer is yes, because this is the God that Abraham was serving. This is the God that the prophets were prophesying about. This is the God that was over Israel. As we're going to look at in the next verse, that they completely understand what Jesus has said and who he has made himself out to be in his proclamation of before Abraham was, I am. Now let's look at their response. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So as we close this chapter, this discord between the Jews, this tension has hit its head. And it's boiled over, now they want to kill Jesus. And as we see in other passages, they said because he was making himself equal with God. To them, he was committing blasphemy that they thought they should stone him. This is tragic. Just imagine getting to stand before God, hear him speak, be in his presence. Hear him extend salvation. And because of sin, they reject him. And that is a state that if we do not have Christ, we would do the same. We are not better than these Jews without Christ. Because we were rejected him because we did. We rejected him in many different ways, in different fashions that we did. What a sad reality, such unfortunate to be standing before the face of God, hearing him speak, being able to touch him. So imagine how much we desire that, to just be before him, 
a reality that we will only get to see in heaven. They had this opportunity, and yet they rejected it. So let us not be deceived by sin. Let us not reject God as he stands before us. As he says, I am here, I am. Believe in me, trust me, follow me, keep my word. Let us not be like the Jews, who as they stood before God, making his proclamation to them, they rejected him. And as we conclude today, as we've seen beautiful things about who Jesus is, he's not a demon. He's not this crazy madman. He is the very source of life. He is the unique son of God. And that the reason why he is greater than Abraham, the prophets, and every other person, thing, place, anything, is because he is God. And he is the God that all things were made for, as we read in Colossians earlier. They were all made for him, for his purpose. This is the purpose of all things. And that is what we believe and trust if we are believers. But on the other side, for those who do reject him, they will be left to their sin, as even we see what Jesus did with the Jews. As he came in secret and hid it, and when he left, he left hidden. Almost as a proclamation of, they have been rejected. And they have been left and given over to their sins. And that is the sad reality for those who see Jesus. They say, he is a liar, a legend, a lunatic. They reject him. Or, by placing faith in him, by trusting him by believing what we have read today, by believing that this is our God, this is Jesus, that he is Lord. Let us pray. How sweet is your name, Lord Jesus. What a beautiful picture that we get to see of you. So to see you proclaim who you are. Lord, help us not to reject you as the Jews did. As you display it to them, you show them who you are. Help our hearts not to reject you, but to be reconciled to you. That we may have a relationship with you. That we may enjoy you. That we may tell others. That we may minister to others, calling everyone to be reconciled to you. Thank you so much for your word, that we can read it. And Lord, give us hearts the desire to be in your word, to see what do you have to say. And we thank you so much for how gracious you've been to each and every single one of us. Amen.